0: at fbcaa.org/live, we want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. We are turning again to the book of Haggai. We have spent quite a minute. We have spent several meetings in that book. I think this is number four, if my notes are accurate. The more I look into this book and consider what is here, the more, I guess, impressed I am as to the importance of what it is and of how important it is for us to actually consider what is here. I chose some titles for the prior messages that I brought. The first one. I used the title, God Neglected a Temple Project Neglected. And I talked about why I selected that, because we see that Haggai quickly gets to the point of the message that he's bringing. The people have failed to continue after they started the building rebuilding the temple, they had failed to complete the project. In fact, they had been away from the project for a considerable amount of time. And so what I s- suggested is this. That before they neglected building, the building project, they neglected their God. That's a tall order. That's that's a major point. If we turn our faces away from the Lord, what else are we going to find ourselves doing or not doing that we should be doing? And so the point is that it's really about him and not so much us a temple neglected, a temple project. We referred to before how that the people to whom Haggai was speaking were people who had experienced captivity, the Babylonian captivity, we call it. They had been hauled off to Babylon for a 70-year captivity. And it was because of the choices that they had made that God had arranged for this captivity to occur. And so there they went. Now we said the Babylonian captivity, and we understand that they didn't all go at one point. There was a 605 and a 597, but generally we think of 586 B.C. because at that point, is when the temple was destroyed. And then the king and many of the people were marched on down to Babylon. so that really was a very low point. They were put out of their land. These were not just any nation that happened to be on the earth at that time. These were a special people people whom God referred to as my people, people whom God has made a covenant with. And he said, I'm going to accomplish certain things for you. And the benefit will not be just to you, but to all the nations of the world. We here are benefiting now from the promises that were made but they had neglected building the temple project. And then I brought a message which I put as a title, Why Build the Temple? Why Build It? That's an easy question to answer as to why build it, but I want to suggest this from the passage of Scripture we're looking in for the answer to the question, why build a temple? If you look in verse number 8 of Haggai chapter 1, and notice the words that are recorded there. He tells them to go up to the mountains and to bring wood and to build the temple. Now the next part, and I've emphasized this before, but the next part is the part that I want to draw emphasis to. Because there is a purpose clause here. He's not saying just go and get these materials and build so that you can enhance your skills as builders and be better able to build your own places. That was not the point. But there was a point. And the point is this. He says that I may take pleasure in it. And be glorified. And that's why I say it is really all about God and not about the people so much. But the people can glorify God, that God might be glorified. They can do, we can do things that glorify Him. To me, that's an amazing thing. Because we think about God being the Creator. And he is a sustainer. And he has a plan, a master plan. And it will be completed. And he will not fail. And that we can glorify him. He said, build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. And so if they wanted to bring pleasure to God, if they wanted to glorify him, what did they have to do? They had to build the temple. That was a thing that was standing between them and their God. They didn't, they had not done what they should have done. But he was laying out to them the opportunity to, to do it. So you missed, you let this thing go undone, just no work for 16 years. They had started building in 538. They built a couple of years, got the foundation in and some of the other things, and were able to do some uh, sacrifices and worship things and all that. But they had opposition. We read about and talked about some of that we see in the book of Ezra. And so it wasn't just a matter of saying, well, you know, it's it's just... Uh, I just have some other thing and I just do it. But they had real opposition. I made reference to the point where there, had, there was actually a legal challenge to the building project. And they had to go in and have to search out the records to find out that the decree actually had been made. Cyrus made the decree. And then Darius followed and came through. And so the people understood that this is what should be done, 16 years. So why build the temple? That God might take pleasure in it and that he might be glorified. So then, they obeyed and resembled the temple building project. I talked some about this idea of the significance of the temple. The whole idea that God not only said, these people whom I'm raising up out of the seed of Abraham will be my people, my covenant people. But he also said and talked about dwelling with his people, a place where he would be, meet with them and a place, Jerusalem. The tabernacle they had in the wilderness we remember reading about the Shekinah glory and all of that in connection with that temple. But the way that he provided for them in their wilderness journey so that they could properly worship the God whom they, who, who was their true God, the true God, the tabernacle, and then later to have the temple to be built. And it was... We mentioned before as well about David. David was a king who desired to build that temple for the Lord. He wanted to carry out that project. His heart was in the right place. And God recognized that. And he credited that to him, that his heart was in the right place. God's program included the building of a temple. But it did not include David being the one to oversee that project. I want to refer to some verses here from 1 Kings chapter 8. The temple got built, and it was dedicated under Solomon's rule. And I just want to read some of the things that are a a small portion from this chapter 8 in 1 Kings. And I want us to notice some of these things. Let me start at verse 12. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said, he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. While all the assembly of Israel was standing, and he said, "Blessed be the God Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name may be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. The significance of the temple, very significant. But it was that God might take pleasure and be glorified. And that's very important. Now the priorities of Haggai's audience was off. They didn't have their priorities in the correct order. And because they didn't there were some consequences that they didn't like. That they needed not to suffer. But God had given to them the ability, the wherewithal, to choose their priorities, and they did. But they didn't do it independently of God. They didn't do it as if he had no cognizance or no response. But they chose priorities. Misplaced priorities, that's something we have to work at all the time. The idea of saying, Lord, this block of time right here now that I'm using, what really should I be doing with it? Sometimes I think we don't want to ask that question because we have something in mind that we are planning to do. and We think if we look too closely here, the Lord might not be saying amen to that. But that's a challenge for us, and we have to keep working at it. To say, Lord, give us your priorities. For what I'm to do, and then help me to do it first to understand and then to do. I want us to take note of a couple of verses here. Priorities. I'm in chapter one and verse two. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This this people says The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses? And this temple lie in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, misplaced priorities, And look at verse number 9. I talked about consequences, and we're not going to go through it exactly the way we did before. But in verse number 9, notice this. I'm going to read the whole verse. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house. that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. That's talking about priorities. For 16 years the Lord's house was in ruins. It's not that they weren't building, they were building, and it was not that they were, what they were building was inappropriate things to build. They weren't. The problem was not what they were doing, but the priority of what and how they went about what they did. It was proper for them to have houses, even panel houses, I would say, but not as a superior priority to God's house. That was the point that he was making to them, not that. And so now we're going to move along to chapter 2 in Haggai here we note the dates that are given. And all of these dates are in 520 B.C. So that all that is within this book transpires or references a short span of time, roughly four months from the beginning to the end of it. At the beginning of chapter 2, this is what we we'll read. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, notice, speak now. May I emphasize again that Haggai is a servant of the Most High God. He is doing God's bidding. He's not doing a project for himself. He's not trying to build accolades for himself, but he's doing God's bidding. Speak now. And he lists three specifics as to whom he is to speak. He talks about Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah. Governor? We talked about that before as well. Governor of Judah. Why isn't he king? Well, they don't have a king. They don't even have independence. They are under the subjugation of the Persians. So he serves as governor there, the governmental leader. But he also says to Joshua, the high priest, the one who is responsible to know, to help the people to know what God requires, what his word is, what he has to say, what he wants the people to do to Joshua. But notice, though, that last part, the last one here, number three is, it says, to the remnant of the people. And so you have the governmental leadership. You have those who are responsible for the spiritual leadership. And then you have all the people. So everybody is supposed to listen. And now he brings this question out. And he says in verse 3, who is among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And I will tell you now what the heading is that I put on my notes for this time. And I call it the former and the future glory of the temple. That are bringing out the point here. And so Solomon's temple had a measure of glory, excellence, and all of that. Now they were building a lesser. But then we read on. And it talks about a future temple. And so that even with all the glory of Solomon's temple, that was not the peak of the glory that would be associated with the temple. Now, I think we can be sure to understand that when that structure was completed and when Solomon was doing the dedication, That it was indeed a magnificent structure. Magnificent. By the standards of the world, magnificent. Glorious. But God has something for the future. But here, in this part, he says about those who maybe remember the former prophet. I mean, the, the former temple. Who is among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? People talk about the temple and which temple, and Solomon's temple, and Herod's temple, and, and all this. But it does say this temple, and it talks about Solomon's, the former glory was Solomon's temple, this temple. So the temple concept. Is a constant. We don't have to be worried about which one of these in a historical place. But the temple is the issue here, in its former glory. How do you see it now, in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? So the the magnificence, the opulence of the prior building. Those who remembered it. They may be thinking, this is an inferior structure that could cause depression and despair to think about that. Sometimes we hear people, some, some of us older ones, we talk about some things that were in older days better than they are now, that nostalgia. And some things were. Some things were not. But those who remembered that temple, he says, Yet now be strong. And so he says, You may be thinking about that old temple. But here's what I want you to do, and here's what I want you to think about and to consider. And so he uses the word be strong. And again, we will draw attention to the, the literary skill and, and emphasis, the way this is brought. Because the be strong is applied three times or to three specifics. So he says be strong. And here's the way I want us to think about that. First he said be strong. And then... He says, work, and then he says, do not fear. Those three things in that order. We see them in this, these a few verses that we're looking at now. Be strong, work, and do not fear. They have been working when they started rebuilding in 538. But fear did set in. And they have real, live opposition. And so it was natural and human to be fearful. But God said, don't do that. There's good reason to not do it. So who does he address when he says, be strong? Look in verse number four. Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel. That's a governmental leader. That's an imperative form there, for him to be strong. But he also says, be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. He also he is being told, be strong. But that's not all. He says, be strong to all the people. Of the land. And so they're all given the ammunition to be strong. I think for you, as for me, this brings to mind Joshua. And how Joshua had a big job to do as the successor of Moses to lead God's people out of the wilderness and into the land that had been promised. But he was admonished, he was told, be strong. I'm going to read a few of those verses that talk about that. One of those, I'll just read a few of those from Joshua. I'm not going to turn to it. I have it here on my notes. But in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, it says this Be strong and of good courage, for the, to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to do or commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. So he said, just do what I'm telling you to do. And I'm saying, if you do, I'm going to prosper you. And then in verse 9, also Joshua chapter 1, it says, Have not I commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For, notice this. See, there's a reason. He's just not saying be strong, be courageous. But he says, why can I tell you this as an imperative? Here's the reason why. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. So if the Lord, his God, is with him, then he can say, oh, yes, I'm going to be strong and I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to do what he said because he's with me. And, and as much as he's with me, I can have the confidence to go ahead and do it. If he's not with me, I better get that part straight out first. Before trying to move on. Verse 18. Still in Joshua chapter 1. Whoever rebels against your command. And does not heed your words. In all that you command. Shall be put to death. Only be strong. And of good courage. He was admonished. To be strong. Now back in Haggai. And this is what I just picked out in verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you. Be strong. Work. I am with you. They can't have better circumstances to be strong and courageous and to work than that circumstance in which God is with them. And that's what he said to do and what they were to do. And so they were not to have fear. They needed not to have fear because God was with them. Let me read on to verse number five now, still in Haggai chapter two. According to the word that I covenated with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. And so that was a third of the three items that I talked about, where he said, be strong, work, do not fear. You can do it because I'm with you. God says to us that we can do what he wants us to do because he's with us. So we can do what he wants. That's the challenge for us. To be willing to understand and to do What it is that he wants to do. I'm gonna read again from verse six, I mean verse five here. He says, according to the word that I covenated with you when you came out of Egypt, the coming out of Egypt, and how God orchestrated the delivery of his people from Egypt and what God did was not something that should be just written off in a history book closed and never thought about again and he brings that to mind he says I was faithful to you I was what do you think I'm going to do now I was with you then. You were my covenant people. And you still are. I was with you then. What about now? He says, I'm with you now. You're still my covenant people. You've been disobedient. That's why you had to spend that time down there in Babylon. But you're still my people. I chastise you. I chasten you. I discipline you. With the Babylonian captivity, as a demonstration of my love for you. Isn't that something? Sending the people into captivity to demonstrate his love for them. How many nations have, walked, have been on the earth that we know nothing about? They got wiped off. We can't even find a trace of them. Find glimpses here and there certain great kingdoms were present. But we don't know anything about them. But these were not the covenant people of God. He delivered it, he kept his promise to them. And he ever will. And so he says, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more... It is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, the temple that was before Solomon's temple, the smaller and less ornate temple building that they were building. And the future temple. I will fill this temple. With glory. Says the Lord. And then the Lord says this. He says. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine. Says the Lord. The glory. Of this latter temple. Shall be greater. Than the former. Says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace said the Lord of hosts the glory of the future temple now we understand now that this he's speaking in eschatological terms now things that are future things that will be but not yet because this is God's program and this is his plan and he said this is the way It is going to be. And so if you want to know how it's going to be. You can know that. All you have to do is believe what God said about it. And then you know. You can know you know. Because God is. A God of truth. And whatever he says. Is the truth. And so we can count on it. Because he said it. See we should be. Pastor mentioned us learning and trying to position ourselves to become more and more like Christ, our Savior, more and more like him. And this point about truth is an important point. I said that God said that the glory of the future temple will exceed the glory of the former. God said it, and it's going to be that way. What he spoke was true. We speak. We say a lot of things. We hear voices speaking all the time, saying all kinds of things. How many of those voices are speaking truth? that we hear and listen to and believe and heed. How many of those voices are speaking things that are diametrically opposite to what God says? And how many of us adopt those things as true and pattern our lives to some degree according to those things That's why we keep saying we have a Bible, we have God's word, and we should make, I will speak for myself, and I suspect all of you will agree with me, I should make better use of it than I do. I thank God that I'm making some use of it, but I should make a lot better use of it. I think you can agree with me. You probably are in the same place that I am on that. But it's a challenge. And so we always are asking God, Lord, it's your work in me that causes me both to be willing to know what it is, it's your work in me that gives me a desire to do the thing I should. And it's your work in me that enables me so that when I cooperate with God and he accomplishes something through me, it's his power that has been demonstrated. And it's all to his glory. To glorify God. That's what God is looking for his own glory and people have misspoken by saying what kind of God do you have who wants to bring glory to himself that's a misplaced idea to cast aspersions on God because of that that's a demonstration of the kind of God we have. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the glory. We don't. So we need to be careful that we don't do things to bring glory to ourselves. But ask the Lord to work it out so that no matter how well at certain little points in time we might be doing what we ought to do that God will get the glory not us that's what we want we will pray to close our father in heaven we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace for the savior the one who he knew no sin and yet he voluntarily was the bearer of sin for us all a helpless people without him but with him oh what a marvelous thing that is And so we plead now again for your help, Lord, that you would draw us nearer to yourself, that we can be found to walk with you. We ask in the name of him who is the Savior, the Lord Jesus, with thanks. Amen.